Welcome to this week's podcast from Free Chapel in Orange County. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, check out our website at freechapel.org. Would you give a warm, warm welcome to General Boykin? Let's tell him how much we appreciate him and all that he represents, the soldiers. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you very much. God bless you all. Thank you very much. The Lord bless you. Please be seated. Well, this is a very special day for a number of reasons. Obviously, Father's Day, but it's, uh, it's wonderful to be here in this church. And, you know, it's an honor when a pastor will turn his pulpit over to you. And they don't do that just, you know, at a whim. So thank you, Pastor, for allowing me to stand in your pulpit today and, and minister to your flock. And, uh, and I, uh, I'm delighted to be here. One of the things that I'm really excited about today is uh, I, I'm 70 years old and my best friend from my high school days is here with his wife. And Jim, stand up for just a second. Jim Farabee from Stone Mountain. Yeah. Now here's the deal we have. I don't tell anything about what he did when we were growing up and he doesn't tell anything about what I did, but suffice it to say, you haven't done anything in your life wrong that we didn't do. <laughs> Guaranteed. Now I gotta do a little survey. I can't help it. You know, if you've ever heard me speak, I gotta know how many Marines I have in the audience. Now, you can always tell because you hear that Marine Corps mating call when I say that. You heard them over there. Well, I got to tell you this story. You know, this Marine always wanted to be a drill sergeant. And the reason he wanted to be a drill sergeant is because when you get out of the drill sergeant school, they give you that Smokey the Bear hat. You know what I'm talking about? And he wanted one of those, and he never got to go to the drill sergeant school, so he didn't get him a Smokey the Bear hat. So he retired from Marine Corps at 20 years, and he went to work for the Virginia State Police. They sent him to the academy, and guess what they gave him? <laughs> Just as soon as he graduated, he got him a Smokey the Bear hat. Man, let me tell you. He would go home at night, and he'd put his pistol on, you know, standing there in his skivvies, and he'd get in front of the mirror. <laughs> he'd put that hat on. He'd do his quick draw in the mirror. <laughs> you talking to me? <laughs> you talking to me? Oh, man, he loved that hat. He was going down Interstate 95 one day, and this car came by, just smoking down the interstate. He pulled the car over. He got out of his car, reached in, got his Smokey the Bear hat, looked in his own mirror, checked himself out. He's looking good. He walked over to the car, and it turned out to be a blonde from California. Have you ever listened to a blonde from California? You ever listen to the way they talk? She rolled the window down. She said, oh, that was so sweet of you to put your little blue thingy on so you and I could stop and talk on the side of the highway. Oh, that was so sweet. <laughs> he said, you are speeding. She said, I'm speeding. I'm, I'm from California, and this is Virginia, and I just love the scenery here, and I wasn't paying attention. He said, show me a driver's license. And she said, I don't have it. I left it in California. Show me a photo ID, ma'am. She went around, stumbled around in her purse, and she couldn't find one. Finally, she found a mirror. <laughs> she looked at the mirror, and she said, oh, here's me. 
and she handed it to him. He turned over and looked at it and he said, sorry, ma'am, if I'd known you were law enforcement too, I wouldn't have stopped you. I love you, Marines. We've got a crisis in America today, and it's absentee fathers. There are a lot of fathers in America today that are not celebrating Father's Day. They don't even know that they have children in some cases. It's killing our families. It's killing our society. The single most important thing in American society or any society if you want a good economy, you want good high school graduation rates, low crime rates, and good personal health, because I'm at the Family Research Council. I know this from the research that we do. The single most important thing you have to have in any community, whether it's Gainesville, Georgia, or Los Angeles, California, you got to have an intact family. That's a father, a mother, and children. you got to have an intact family. And the statistics now is... Any, no matter what your race is, by the time you graduate from high school, there's over a 50% chance that your parents aren't going to be together. And if you're a black child born in America today, there is a 72% chance that your parents are not together. We're destroying our nation because we're destroying our families. And we're coming up with government programs that further exacerbate the problems we already have. And we've got to, we've got to focus on the integrity of the family. Let me tell you about a boy named Cecil. Cecil was born in 1926, and he was born on a tobacco farm. And he grew up, and in 1943, after being told not to, he went and enlisted in the United States Navy because he had four brothers that were already serving in the European theater. And Cecil went off to war. On the 6th of June, 1944, at a place called Normandy, as the Americans were pouring across the beaches of Normandy, Cecil was driving a landing craft, and it was hit. Cecil woke up in Bethesda Naval Hospital, not knowing how he got there or what happened, but they said, Cecil, you're going to be blind in one of your eyes for the rest of your life. Cecil took his discharge and went back to the tobacco farm, and Married his high school sweetheart and started his family, and then the Korean War came along, and the Army would take disabled veterans that could still function. So Cecil went into the Army, served through the Korean War, and then came back to the farm and took a discharge a second time and went back to farming. And, and then the United States Marine Corps came along and gave Cecil an opportunity to work with the Marine Corps as a civilian. And, he came back in to service of his country a third time, and, and he, uh, he never wanted anything from his country but an opportunity. See, that's all Cecil wanted. He loved America. He loved, he loved the flag. He loved the national anthem. He wanted, he wanted opportunity. And uh, Cecil loved his family. He loved his God. And he loved his country. See, he was a patriot. Up until the time that he died, he'd, he'd always stand for that flag. He'd always stand when he heard the national anthem. He loved uh, baseball. And he was known as Mr. Baseball in a little town that he lived in. And, 
And then before Cecil died, they named the local baseball field after him because he was so committed to baseball. But one of the things that Cecil did before he died, when his own children were gone and out of the home, off on their own, making their own way, Cecil adopted a little black boy. His name was Shakif because he believed that the worst thing that could happen to a boy was to grow up without a father in his home. So Cecil became that father. You don't even know that, do you? They named the baseball field the Gerald Cecil Boykin baseball field. He was my dad. And he was my example. He was my hero. He didn't have a high school education, but he knew what was important. And he taught Shakif to play baseball in New Bern, North Carolina. In case you don't know it, New Bern, North Carolina used to be one of the most racist places. And people would say, Gerald, what are you doing? That boy's black. And I can't say in the church exactly what my dad would say to them, but they understood that they were to mind their own business, okay? <laughs> My presentation today is called The Five P's of Manhood, and I reflect a lot on what I learned from Gerald Cecil Boykin, my dad. A man can put his life into categories of five responsibilities, and the first one is that a man is the provider. A man should make the living for his family. That doesn't mean that Mothers can't work, it doesn't mean that at all, but a man bears the responsibility biblically to make an, earn a living by the sweat of his brow. Now, that, at some point a man retires and he, he enjoys the fruits of his labor. But when a man can work, the Bible says if you, if you don't work, you don't eat. A man has a responsibility. We have to be very careful of these government programs, whether they're federal, state, or local that make it more profitable, that gives a man more incentive not to work than to work. That's wrong. That's unbiblical. And we've got to watch those programs. A man has to work. And you see so many today that are, and, and, and sadly, we, we see millennials today that are coming out with no real idea of what they want to do to get, I, look, I came into the Army and I, that was my profession for 36 and a half years. But a man's got to work. But you know what? As the provider, the first P, the man is also the one that provides direction to the family. You know, you remember the story in the Bible about Joshua, who's my favorite character in the Bible. He, he gets to the Jordan River. Moses says, I'm going to die. You're going to take him across the river, and you're going to conquer the promised land. And when he had done all that, he led the elders out into the wilderness and he gathered them together and he preached his own epitaph and he said, choose you this day, which God you will serve, whether it's the God of your fathers that served when we were on the other side of the river or whether it's the God of the Amorites in whose land you are today. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Dad's. Listen carefully. 
You're the spiritual head of your family. No matter what society will tell you, you are the spiritual head. Now, I want it to be very clear. I'm married to a beautiful little green-eyed woman. I love that woman with all my heart. She is the wind beneath my wings. I don't know what I would ever do about it. I would have no reason to live if anything happened to her. But she'll tell you I'm the spiritual head of our family. I haven't written a check in 20 years. I don't know whether I even make any money or not or whether she borrows it. I have no idea. I come home sometimes and I don't know if I'm in the right house because she's moved everything in the house. <laughs> Anybody else had that experience? And she called me up last night and said, I'm buying a certain thing. I was on the way down here. She called me up and said, I'm going to, I've called your brother and I'm getting a sudden certain thing and it was pretty expensive. And I said, okay, I hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Listen. You're the spiritual head. You provide direction to your family. And when a family is rudderless because they don't have a father, that family nine times out of ten disintegrates. And then the final thing you provide is you provide identity. My wife was adopted. Her and her twin sister were born in Manhattan and adopted at nine weeks old. My wife has been on a quest most of her life to find her identity. And you know what? I never thought about it. I never thought about how important identity was. Remember those chapters in the Bible? The so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. And don't tell me that you don't do the same thing I do. You skip all in. <laughs> but there's a message behind them, and that is the importance of identity, knowing who we are. When you, when, and if, if you go back historically, you had to prove your lineage to be a Jew, to be accepted into a tribe. You had to prove your lineage. You had to know who your grandfather and great-grandfather was. My dad was an uneducated man, but when we drive the 80 miles from New Bern to Wilson, North Carolina, to see my grandmother all the way, he would be telling me my lineage. He would say, your grandfather was Richmond Irvin Boykin, and he was a left-handed fiddle player, and he was married to Susie Williamson Boykin, and she was a best cornbread maker in all of Wilson County. And, and then he'd go over to my mother's side. I, it was boring. I hated it. But later on, I began to appreciate the fact that my dad established an identity for me. He established an identity. He let me know who I am. And on my mother's side, my grandfather was the biggest bootlegger in Eastern North Carolina. And that's no joke. I write about it in my Bible. I mean, in my book here, I write about this, about my grad, because that's an important part of my lineage, because it gives me an opportunity to overcome that generational curse by my actions. The dad, the father, you established the identity. Guess what I do during holidays now? When my grandchildren are with me, when my children are with me, guess what I do? I tell them who their ancestors were. I tell them about what I remember. I tell them about the things that I did with their grandfather and now their great-grandfather. But I'm helping them establish an identity. The father provides the identity to the family. The second thing that the father is, is you're the protector. The obvious is you protect them from, from physical harm. And, and, uh, and, and I, this is one of the things I, I said. I just want to say this, too, because I feel so strong about this. You're a protector. When you, if you are a father, if you're a male, when you come out of the womb and they identify you as a male, you come out with a certain anointing on you, and that is that you are to be a protector. You don't ever go buy something that you could 
make a difference in and let it happen and then look back and regret, I should have stopped it. Especially when it is a man abusing a woman. You cannot go by that and then think that you're ever going to be able to live with yourself. Your conscience is going to bother you. I was telling some people this morning. I was going down Interstate 95 the Friday before Thanksgiving. And I looked on the side of the road and there was a man that had stopped on the side of the road. He had a woman out and he had her by the hair and he was slinging her around and he slammed her down on the side of the interstate there and he kicked her and then he got down there and started punching her. I whipped off the, uh, the, the highway, went right off to the side there and uh, reached over and grabbed my Kimber 45 caliber pistol and I, I did, I'm not kidding. And I was running down the interstate and it dawned on me, you don't have a round in the chamber and I'm jacking around in the chambers, I'm running down and I'm thinking the only thing those people going down the interstate are gonna see is me loading my pistol. <laughs> and I'm gonna wind up getting it. Well, I didn't get arrested and I did, uh, he changed his mind. Let's just say that, he changed his mind. I don't know how many of you have ever looked down the barrel of a, of a 45 caliber pistol, but it's ugly in there. And he, uh, he changed his mind and we got, to, we got him arrested and, and got him. You don't go by a situation like that. And you don't go by a situation like that. And I said, look, there's worse, there's worse things that can happen to you than getting your, your backside kicked. The worst thing that can happen to you is having to live with the fact that you didn't try to do something. You're a protector. You protect. You protect your family. And... Uh, but you also protect them from more than just physical harm. By the way, my wife, oh, this little green-eyed beauty. My wife has five guns in the bedroom. I, I'm gone a lot. You know, I travel. She's got five guns in the bedroom. She's got a, the best alarm system we can buy and a, a dog with a nasty attitude. <laughs> you don't want to go to my house, but that's my responsibility to make sure she's able to protect herself there. But uh, the second thing is, that you protect them from evil. First of all, you call me crazy, you call me one of them loony Pentecostals or whatever you want to. I don't think I hadn't been called that before. But when I move into a new house, which I did frequently in the military, but when I move into a new house, I get me a bottle of oil and I go around to every window and door. I now anoint it and I pray over it. Every phone line, every cable. And I say, Lord, don't let evil into my home. Don't let evil into my home. You got to protect your home. You got to protect that home. You need to consecrate your home. You need, even if you've been in it for 30 years, you go home and consecrate that home. You consecrate it. You dedicate it to God and ask that the evil be protected. You got to protect your children and your family from evil. And that's, as the protector, that's your responsibility. And you got to help protect them from making the bad choices that you made. And just because you did something, you don't have to tell them about it. And that's what, well, I've been honest with my children about my drug use, and I've told them, and, all, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, think about this. They're looking at you saying, wow, you did drugs, and you got through it, and you're okay now. You're serving the Lord. What's going to hurt for me to try it a little bit? That's what goes through their minds. You don't need to tell them what you did. Just share with them your wisdom that you've gained over the years and what you've learned from the bad choices that you've made. And then finally, as a protector, just one thing that I want you to remember. 
You're not their friend first. You're not their best friend first. You're the father. You're the father. You'll come to a point in your life where you'll be their best friend. My boys, I'm, I, next month, end of July, we're going to Alaska for the eighth year in a row. We're going to Alaska. And in October, we're going to Idaho. And we're going to be hunting up in Idaho. We're going to be fishing in Alaska. And we've got several things like that. And we're best friends in many ways. But we weren't when they were growing up because I was the authority figure in their home. And I was the one that had to say no to them. And I was the one that had to tell them, I don't care what everybody else is doing. You're not doing that. You can't go there. You're not their friend at the expense of being the parent. And then the third thing is you're the pal. Pal, P-A-L, you're a pal. The Navy calls it a shipmate. The Army calls it a battle buddy. The Air Force calls it a wingman. But you need a man in your life, dads. I'm talking to the men. I'm talking to you, dad. You need a man in your life that will be your partner for accountability purposes, for mentoring purposes. You need a man in your life. You see, men were born. Men are not islands. Men were born for fellowship, not only fellowship with God, but fellowship with each other. You need a man in your life that you trust implicitly that will not violate your conscience or your, your confidentiality that you can go to and say, man, I need to share with you what I'm struggling with. Man, I need to share with you what's happening in my life now. And he won't violate your confidence in him. But he'll, he'll, he'll mentor you, he'll pray with you, and then you'll do the same for him. You see, I got a battle buddy that's, in fact, he's, He's, uh, he's the guy that I wrote this book with. He's a spiritual giant. His name is Stu Weber. He's a pastor out in Oregon. And he wrote the best book for men I've ever read. It's called Tender Warriors. And, and he had a tremendous impact on my life before I even met him. He's a former Green Beret in Vietnam. And, and he's my battle buddy in that I can call him up and I can share my fears. I can share my struggles. I can share the things that all of us as men go through. I can share it with him. And he'll call and share his struggles with me and we'll pray for each other. You need a man like that in your life. If you don't have one, find one. And where that is most, most important is with pastors. Every pastor on this staff here needs a battle buddy. It needs a battle buddy that will not betray their confidence. Every pastor, every pastor in every church needs a battle buddy, but nobody wants to be the battle buddy, the pal for the pastor, because we don't want the pastor reading their minds and knowing what's going through their minds. You've got to have a battle buddy. There's no, remember the disciples went out in what, pairs. And who did King David, the great King David, who did he have? Jonathan. And then you had two old battle buddies that I think is one of the greatest stories in the Bible is two old battle buddies named Joshua and Caleb. And they went out on the same reconnaissance with 10 other people and they all came back after having spied out the Holy Land, the promised land, and they came back and everybody else said, no, Lord, oh my goodness, we look like grasshoppers in their sight. It's a land of milk and honey, it's everything we thought, but... Oh, they're, we're just, they, we can't take it. And, uh, but these two, Joshua and Caleb, they said, wait, wait a minute. 
everything they say is true. But God promised us this land. Come on, boss, let's take it. Let's go. And Moses listened to the sissies. He didn't listen to the warriors. There were only two warriors there. And they walked around for 40 years in the desert before they finally took the promised land. They got into the promised land. They conquered that promised land. These two old battle buddies were the only ones that had, had lived in that 40 years. And now it's 45 years after, after they had told Moses, let's go now. 45 years and Caleb's sitting around the fire with his battle buddy. The guy he's been with for 45 years now. Iron sharpens iron. He's just sitting around with his battle buddy and he's saying, I spoke then as it was in my heart. I knew God had given us that land and we should have taken it. I spoke then as it was in my heart. And he said, and now 45 years later at the age of 85, I'm the same man I was then. Give me the hill country, the ruggedest, worst part of the promised land. Give me the hill country. I'm 85 years old, but I'm the same man I was in. And Joshua gave it to him. You know what? They were battle buddies. Joshua trusted him. He can conquer it. He can take it. At 85, he says he can do it. He can do it. He gave him the hill country. We need to be a pal to someone as a father, as a man. We've got to be a pal to someone, and we need a pal in our lives. And then the number four, you are the professor. Billy Graham said that we should be walking around with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper under our arm. He was stressing the importance of knowing what's going on in the world. We have to stay informed on, on, on world affairs. And I, and I know that, and people tell me this all the time, I've just quit watching the news because it's so depressing. That's all the more reason you should be watching it or you should be reading it. And you don't have to watch Fox or CNN or MSNBC. In fact, I, the only one I do anymore is Fox. But, and that's because the others have gotten, just gone so far off the scale in, in, this, in this climate that we live in today that I, it's, hard for me to, it's hard for me to justify going on just to be beat up by them. But that said, there's so many outlets that you don't know about. There's so many online things, but you need to know what's going on. Dads, you need to be watching. You need to be reading. You need to be studying. And by the way, you need to know history. I read incessantly. I am a fanatic reader. I can't go to sleep at night if I don't read. I read my Bible, and then I get my book, whatever book I'm reading, but they're always history. You got to know history. You got to know this country. You, and you're the professor in your family. You got to be able to explain to your children what the founding fathers were trying to accomplish when they said, Congress shall make no laws respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, or abridging the freedom of speech, or of the press, or the right of the people, peaceably to assemble, to petition their government for the redress of grievances. One amendment has five freedoms. You've got to be able to explain that to them. What were they trying to do? And why? You've got to know history in order to do that. As a father, you need to study history. You need to study what's happening in our society, in our day. And then you need to, as a professor, you need to teach them skills. And by the way, I've got six grandchildren. Three of them are boys. They're the youngest three. And, and uh, 
man, when they come to our house at Christmas or New Year's or whatever it might be, they are all out boys. We don't medicate them at all. <laughs> and they are all out. You got to let boys be boys. You got to let boys, they're going to break something. Now, I don't mean don't hold, you know, don't give them boundaries. I don't mean that at all. But I mean, look, if they want to climb trees, let them climb. If they want to get dirty as little pigs, let them get dirty as little pigs. That's what boys are supposed to be. They're going to skin their knees. They're going to break things. They may break grandma's lap, but you got to let them be boys. Because if you want a boy to grow up and be a good man, you got to let him be a boy. And you know something else you got to do? As a professor, you've got to recognize how important it is for your boys to experiment with things. Now, I'm not talking about drugs and all, but to, to do things, but also to endure hardship. And we were, I was sitting around in Alaska. I got a son that's a Secret Service agent up in Richmond, and he used to, he's guarded both President Reagan, I mean, not Reagan, but President Bush, George, w., or George W. Bush, as well as President Obama. He's guarded both of them, and now he's, he's in Richmond. But he went through Ranger School, one of the toughest things the Army's got. He went through Ranger School, and they started with, I think, 44 people, and they, they finished, or 242 people, and I think they finished actually with 48 people because it was the worst year. Up here in Dahlonega, the snow was so bad up in Dahlonega, Georgia. The people were dropping like flies, and we were sitting around up in Alaska, and he, we were talking about that and how he was one of the few that made it through. He said, you know why, Dad? I said, no. He said, I, said, I guess you're a tough guy. He said, yeah, but he said, Dad. He said, you remember all those mornings when you come in here and get me up at 4.30 in the morning and you drive me out to the woods and you put me up in that tree stand you wouldn't come back and get me till 5.30 that afternoon and I'd sit out there shivering the whole time? I said, yeah, I'm sorry, man. He said, yeah, you remember those mornings you'd get me up and you'd take me out on a duck blind and there'd be ice all over everything. It'd be sleeting or snowing or something. And I just sit there shivering all day. My hand never could get. He said, I still got nerve damage in my feet from them old rubber blues. I said, yeah, I'm sorry. Son. I said, no, you're missing my point, Dad. He said, I, I made it because I knew I could. Because I'd endured hardship before. <laughs> we gotta, we got to be careful to think that we've got to protect our children from from every hardship because enduring hardship toughens them. It makes them mentally tough as well as physically tough. Dads, that's your responsibility. Take them out. I do what I used to do. I used to go up on the Appalachian Trail and I'd walk their little legs off up on the Appalachian Trail. They'd have a little rucksack with them and, and uh, I'd wear them out. Now they want me to go up there so they can wear me out. <laughs> And that ain't happening, I can tell you that. But that said, guess what they do now? They take their sons up there to walk the Appalachian Trail because they see the value of it because it does toughen them. It toughens them up. It's important for us to be tough as men, mentally and physically. We, uh, we also need to understand that we need to as the professor, we need to explain to them about courage. And courage is not the absence of fear, but the professor of you, in you, 
you need to explain to them, and they need to see courage in you. They need to see you not compromising on issues. The worst thing you can do is compromise on it. You talk one thing in the home, and you do something else when, you, when you're out of the home, and they see that, and that just discourages them so much. You gotta stand for what you believe in. You gotta stand for what's right. And you can't compromise on it. And they've gotta see you have the courage of your convictions. And courage is not the absence of fear. Look, let me, let me assure you that it's not the absence of fear. I, I've got over 500 parachute jumps. Most of them are free fall parachute jumps. And I, I've jumped as high as 26,000 feet out over the Alps in Europe. And I have a fear of heights. I'm not kidding. I have a fear of heights. And I was scared on everyone. I had to overcome. Had to overcome every one of them. My fear I had to overcome. Let them see you show courage. And then finally, the fifth P is you're the, in the family, you're the priest. You're the spiritual head of the family. You have to know the word of God. Can I just suggest to you that... Uh, if you're not on a plan to read through the Bible in a year, get on one. Get on one. There are structured plans that you can get on to read through the Bible. You've got to know the Word of God. You don't have to be a theologian. I'm no theologian. But you've got to know the Word of God. You have to know the Word of God. So get you a program where you can read through this. You can study the, the Word and get you a concordance or a study guide that will help you. You can get study guides for almost any, any book of the Bible just on that book and understand what the authors were trying to say. But read through the Bible and then understand what's going on today in the world. George Barna in Barna Research says 9% of the people in America today have a biblical worldview. Think about that. This nation was founded as a, as a, as a Judeo-Christian nation, America was founded on a Judeo-Christian foundation. And now we've got about 38% that even attend church on a regular basis. Does that shock you? You, you have to know what's going on in the world around you as well as what's going on in your country, your city, your state. So read, study, and understand what's going on in your community, in your surroundings, because you're the priest of the family and you need to be able to put it in a context of a biblical worldview. And by the way, when you get home today, I encourage you to read Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then do a, take a look around what's happening in the Middle East and the world today. And see if you see some of those things that are in Ezekiel 38 and 39 forming up, taking shape right now. Read Ezekiel 38 and 39. And then finally, let me say to you grandfathers in particular, when it comes to a holiday and you got all those grandchildren and children there, you be the one that prays over the meal. Grandfathers. You pray over the meal. You're still the spiritual head. Pray over the meal. Let them see you pray. Let them see you pray. Nothing delights me more than when my children call me and say, Dad, would you pray about such and such? I need your prayers, Dad. Let me, you know, it means I passed their test 
as a Christian. And I'm going to come to a close by telling you the last responsibility you have as the priest, but I want to tell you just one story first because I want you to be thinking about what I'm about to tell you. As I, as I tell you what the last part of being a priest is all about. In Mogadishu during Black Hawk Down, you know I was the commander of the Delta Force, and I lost, and it's chronicled here in the book, what I'm about to tell you, but I lost 16 men there. I was wounded myself. But after losing those 16 men, all I could say was, God, where were you? And I went over and sat down on my bunk, weeping uncontrollably. I said, God, where were you? And the answer came to me, and the answer was, there is no God. There's no God, because if there was a God, this never would have happened. And uh, the moment that I said in my heart, there is no God, I heard the voice of the Lord. I heard the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord said, if there's no God, there's no hope. You stop and think about that. But here's what I want you to understand. The moment it was in my heart to be repentant, the moment that I, I, I began to weep even more, I said, God, I'm so sorry that I denied you like Peter that walked with him for three and a half years. And then sat by a fire one night and denied him three times. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. It says he cursed. He don't know him. But the book of Acts says that man that denied him three times went on and preached a sermon that won 3,000 people to the throne. I sat there and I said, I am so sorry, God. The moment it was in my heart, not on my lips, in my heart, to be repentant, to say I'm sorry, I was forgiven. And as people in here today, you're carrying the burden of guilt and you haven't done anything that somebody else in here, and it's probably me, hasn't done. And, and, and you can be forgiven right now. There's nothing, 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 nothing that you've ever done that God will not forgive you for. And don't go down the blasphemy route. Because I don't even know what that is. I can't get to a theologian's degree on it. I think it's just when you reject the Holy Spirit's calling until you die. Nothing you've ever done. You, can't, you ponder what I told you. Now, the last thing is I'm going to tell you. As the priest, you have a responsibility to bless your children. To bl the Father's blessing is so important. It is such a strong biblical concept. The Father's blessing. You had two brothers, Esau and Jacob, that has had a terrible split. That we still see the consequences of that today because one stole the other's Father's blessing. Before Laban would allow Rebecca to go to a foreign land, Mary, he called her forth and they blessed her. They laid their hands on her and they blessed her. The one thing my dad never did is he never blessed me. He's a good man, he was. He's a good man. But he never blessed me, Jim. He never laid his hands on me and blessed me with the Father's blessing. But he didn't know. And I told this story down in, right outside of Houston, Texas one night and a black pastor from San Antonio came up to me. He said, if you'll let me, he said, oh, I'll bless you. And he laid his hands on me and he began to bless me. 
And I stood there and wept. I can't tell you the story without getting emotional. I stood there and wept as he blessed me and affirmed me. And a few weeks ago, I was in Chicago speaking, and there was a little 13-year-old boy there that didn't know who his father was. His mother was in prison. And he so wanted the affirmation of a father. And I, he was right out of the hood in Chicago. I called him up there. I said, son, you come up here. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the father's blessing. I'm going to bless you. And he came and stood, and this little 13-year-old boy began to weep too. And I found him a mentor there. I said, somebody, one of you men in this audience, you're going to mentor this boy. Somebody come and promise that you'll mentor him. The Father's blessing. So wherever you're sitting right now, if your children are anywhere near you, I want you to stand up right now, fathers, and I want you to put your hands on your children. Gather them together. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you were blessed.